Hi there, political devotees. Here's a bonus podcast that I hope you will enjoy. I call it the thrill of the bill. The thrill, that is, of the private member's bill. MPs are not just suits going in and out of the daily question period. They're busy. They do constituency work, committee work, and they're often beavering away on private member's bills, which by their very nature force MPs to navigate a challenging obstacle course. First, your bill has to be picked in a lottery. Then you have to labor and lobby to get your bill through the House of Commons. Then you face what is usually another bumpy ride, getting it through the Senate. It can take multiple steps, many setbacks over many years. Only a fraction of private members' bills receive royal assent and become law. But it's one of the only chances MPs get to put their passion to paper. Examples. In 1964, a new BMP, 30-year-old Jean Chrétien, was successful in getting his private members' bill passed, which changed the name of TransCanada Airlines to Air Canada. I've spoken to him about this recently, and he's still very proud of his bill and Air Canada's name after all these decades. There have been lots of topics for bills that have become laws over the years. More recently, one giving Revenue Canada the legal authority to ask Canadians on their annual tax forms if they wish to be organ donors. There was a bill to amend the national anthem a bill to set up a national strategy for Alzheimer's, and another one to outline the disposal of lamps containing mercury. And the list goes on. On today's podcast, I'm speaking to three MPs about their bills, Conservative MP Marilyn Gladu on pension protection, and Liberal MP John McKay on fighting against forced labour and child labour in supply chains. Both bills have recently received royal assent. NDP MP Brian Massey is almost there with his bill to create an urban park in downtown Windsor, moving along in the Senate. Take a listen as MPs explain what motivates them to push their bills forward and hang in there sometimes for years. It's all about the thrill of the bill. So I'm now joined by Marilyn Gladu. She's the MP for Sarnia Lambton, and she has had two bills passed, private member's bill, which is extremely unusual, but we're going to talk about her most recent one. It's got a long, fancy title. Um, Why don't you give me the shortened version, Marilyn Gladio, and tell me what it does. Thank you, Julie. It's called the Pension Protection Act. And essentially what it does is it makes sure that in the case of bankruptcy, that pensioners who work their whole life for a company get the money that they're owed. And it does that by tabling a report on the solvency of the fund so that people can see where the trouble is. And it gives a mechanism for companies to transfer funds into their pension fund to top it off if it's not in good shape. So, so now if you see, uh, you know, that a company is having problems, um, perhaps maybe they're on the verge of bankruptcy, where do they get the money to top up this fund? Well, normally there are different types of assets in a company. Sometimes it's land, sometimes it's other holdings that they have. And, you know, people are struggling as we come out of the pandemic. So we put a provision in the bill to give people four years to get their financial house in order. And I'm sure that that's enough time, uh, especially knowing that all the federally managed funds currently are at 109% solvency on the average. So it's the best time to do this bill. And uh, we know that this will make a big difference to people that work their whole lives and just need to get the pension they were relying on. So Marilyn Gladio, where did you get the inspiration for this bill? 
Well, I had a neighbor who worked at Sears and she was going to retire and then Sears went bankrupt. And she got 70 cents on the dollar for her pension and she had to keep working. And I thought to myself, well, this is just not right. And so I said, well, has no one ever done a private member's bill like this? And in fact, for the last 20 years, members of all different parties, as well as members in the Senate, have been trying to bring a bill forward to do exactly this. So I looked at everyone else's bill. I cherry picked the parts that we could all agree on, put them all together in one. And that's how we worked together to get this bill over the line. So simply put, what was the big difference uh, about your bill that allowed it to pass? Well, in every uh, one of the other bills, there was always something that one party or another or the Senate didn't like. So, for example, um, Aaron O'Toole had a bill, but in his bill, it allowed people to change the type of pension at the last minute and make it a less uh, valuable pension. Nobody liked that. Then there was uh, provisions in the block bill when it came forward. It went to committee, but they ran out of time because they called the early pandemic election. So otherwise, they had agreement on the priority portion of the bill. And in the NDP bill, they wanted to include um, severance and benefits in the priority, and that was not agreed by all parties. So my bill is a good start down the path, but certainly not the only thing that could be done. So would your neighbor with your bill in place, which is now a law, I guess, right? It got royal assent. Would she get a, her full pension? No, it's not going to help her because the, the priority provision doesn't go into effect for four years. But any company that goes bankrupt, whether it's federally managed or not, after four years will fall under this provision and will have to give um, the money to the hard workers in advance of you know large banks that can more easily afford a failure of one business as opposed to a, a retiree who's looking forward to that one pension for their whole life. So you mean four years from now, when this kicks in, if your neighbor had uh, had that terrible experience of not having her full pension, she would have been protected? Absolutely. Wow. So um, that's quite something. You'd wonder why the government didn't do something. Why did they wait for a private member's bill? Well, you know, there are uh, those who didn't like the bill, and many of those are uh, the bankers and the lawyers. And they always got their money ahead of the hardworking individuals. And so they were, I would say, suggesting that there would be adverse consequences from this bill. They suggested that people would have to pay more for credit and that less credit would be extended to them. And certainly, uh, after four years of being allowed to get your financial house in order, if you can't, then you probably should pay higher interest rates and be loaned less money because you're a greater financial risk. That is the free market. But they had raised these similar concerns when uh, salaries were put into the, the same priority, and there were no adverse consequences in 2005 when that was done. So how did you get around the naysayers? Well, I can be very persuasive as somebody that was named the most collegial twice by my fellow party members. I listen to what people um, are concerned about and then make a compromise. So we had a compromise with the NDP. We had a compromise with the bloc on the timing of the coming into force on priority. Uh, the bloc wanted three years. The liberals wanted seven years. We negotiated four. That was right in the middle. We did try to include severance and termination pay but uh, the government would not go for that. And so uh, we had to let that one go in order to at least have this success. So now I call this little segment, the thrill of the bill. Is it a thrill? 
It is a thrill to think that you can come to Parliament and you can make a change that will affect the lives of thousands of people. There have been hundreds of thousands of Canadians that have been shorted their pension. Uh, makes you feel good. And it's the second one. So the first one got continuous access to palliative care for all Canadians. And so that, again, made a big difference to thousands and thousands of Canadians across the country to be able to live as well as they can for as long as they can. So um, I understand that you had a seatmate, um, Mark Warawa, who unfortunately, and I knew him very well, succumbed to pancreatic cancer, uh, if I'm right about that. And you had been talking about palliative care. Let's just talk about that other bill that you had passed, because we have a, a minute or two to do that. Was it uh, Mark Warawa that... Um, that kind of inspired you to, to do something about palliative care? Absolutely. We were in the debates about medical assistance in dying and all of the amendments on palliative care were being refused. And I said, well, it's a good thing we have great palliative care in Canada. And Mark said, what are you talking about? 70% of Canadians have nothing. And I didn't realize that because in Sarnia, we have a fully integrated palliative care uh, hospice, working with the hospital, working with home care. And so he gave me a book called It's Not That Simple, which was the history of medical assistance in dying across the world. And I said, has nobody ever brought a bill? And he said, well, there was an all parli parliamentary committee, but they bought a, brought a motion and it never went anywhere. So that was the idea to bring the bill. Wow. So um, just to simply tell us, what does your bill on palliative care do? When was that one passed? I've first I've was, heard about it. Yeah, that was uh, December of 2017. 2017. And, yeah. yeah. And so essentially, um, there are training aspects, data collection aspects, but it was to put together a palliative care framework and plan for the country, to which the government added $6 billion of funding to leverage great ideas like using paramedics on their off uh, hours and non-emergency hours to do palliative care in rural and remote places, to put together a virtual palliative care center, to include palliative care training for medical professionals. These are all the things that came out of the bill. So I'm very proud of that one. Well, so Marilyn Gladu, MPs are very busy people. I've been watching them for years uh, in your constituency, on Parliament Hill, in the House. Is working on a private member's bill and getting that passed, is, is that like a highlight? How would you describe it? Yeah, it's a legacy, really. It's something that you get to choose. The party doesn't get to tell you what to do about it. And it is your work that, you know, lets it succeed or fail. And at the end of the day, it does better the lives of Canadians. And so I'm very proud. So did you celebrate on this last uh, bill once it uh, got royal assent, which is very recent? It was a couple of months ago. Well, I'm a fairly joyful person. I celebrate good things every day. But indeed, we did celebrate this. And I went for a nice uh, lunch with uh, Marilyn Gill from the block who brought the priority idea with Daniel Blakey. And I'm going to celebrate as well with Senator David Wells, who stewarded it incredibly well in the Senate. So I guess that's another thing too, maybe we can end on that people think this everything is adversarial in the House of Commons. But when you're working on a private member's bill, you have to work with other people. Well, and this is where a skill of being collegial comes into play and being able to compromise. You know, I worked globally over 254 plants in 30 countries. There's a lot of diverse views there and coming to consensus, I think, is one of the skills I brought with me to Parliament. So you're talking about your work as an engineer. 
That's right. Right. And I think you're putting in a plug for yourself. Second time I've heard it that you were voted as McLean's in their survey as the most collegial MP. But I've interviewed you a few times and I, I would say you're pretty collegial. Most of the time, although the odd question period day, you know. Well, speaking of which, I know you have to mosey on there. So I thank you so much for uh, telling us about your bill and your success with your other one. Can I just ask you last final quick question? What's the secret of getting two bills passed? Can you sum it up? Yeah, the secret is um, listening to the experts about uh, what is the advantage and disadvantage of the bill and error proofing it. And then working um, to inform everyone, listen to their concerns and modify until you get something that everyone can support. And just hope it's not too watered down, right? Uh, that's exactly right. Okay, have a great day. Thanks so much for explaining some of the work you've been doing and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, Julie. It was a thrill. I'm now about to speak to MP John McKay from Scarborough Gilwood, and he's going to tell us all about private members' bills. He's a lucky guy who just had one passed uh, a month ago. It got royal assent. And uh, Mr. McKay, these are not easy things to get off the ground, are they? What are some of the obstacles? Well, we are an overnight success after four years of working <laughs> at this. Um, and the, so the third third time we tried, it was actually the lucky time and started the bill in the Senate and were successful in getting it uh, in and out of committee in the Senate on, on and off the floor in the Senate and over to the House and then uh, got it uh, off the floor of the House and into the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, out and then back. And um, so after a little over a year and a half, we got royal assent uh, last month. Okay, so was it four years or a year and a half? I mean, no, well, it was a year and a half on this bill. But we tried the tried to do the bill in two previous parliaments. Oh, okay. So, so we there started. You go. We started. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and though, and and then just initially, just I know it's a complicated, medieval, weird system, <laughs> but you need to get your bill picked in a lottery or your name or like you have to be picked, right? You have to be picked, but I wasn't. So. Okay. <laughs> So I uh, took an end run and started the bill in the Senate with a friend of mine, Julie Mavillian Deshane. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she started the bill and she was successful in getting it in and out of the Senate and then referred it to me. And then I could run the bill from the House side. Okay. And uh, so we did an end run on the lottery system, which is a ridiculous system. <laughs> but it's a random thing. It's like it's totally random. It's totally, totally random. random. Someone puts yeah. their hand in a pot and pulls it out. I don't know if it's a speaker or what, but you weren't pulled. So I was not. I was not lucky. No. You were not lucky, but you found a way around it. You went through the Senate. OK, so what's your what is your bill, or which is now? Can we call it a law then? It is, is a it? law. It's got. OK, what's your yep. what's your law? I mean, it started as a bill four years ago or whatever. What is it? What's it about? Well, it's a reporting requirement on all corporations above a certain size, 20 million in assets, 40 million in sales, or 250 employees, two out of the three of those. And every CEO is going to have to file a statement. And the statement is going to say uh, to the effect, making it very simple, we've examined our supply chains and we are uh, satisfied that uh, there's no slave component in any of our products that we're, um, we're distributing. It's a little more complicated than that, but uh, but that's the statement that will be 
signed by the CEO and become a uh, public document uh, filed with the government of Canada and um, and examinable by not only the public of Canada but other regulators as well. Okay, so uh, if I look at the the title of your bill, did it also not talk about child labor or was it just slave labor? Child labor, child and labor, and slave labor. Okay, yeah. so I think most Canadians would they be surprised to think that in this country, when you buy something, it could be something that was produced by child labor or slave slave labor. I think they would be surprised. They'd be probably quite horrified. Um, the estimates, the best estimates we have is that about $50 billion worth of product gets sold in Canada and which there there is a reasonable prospect that there is some element of child or slave labor in the production of that product. So that is a very, very significant um, market and that needs to be addressed. So what got you onto this? Why, why did you delve into this? Well, this business is a funny business at times, but I was invited to a meeting uh, of some British parliamentarians. The British had a, uh, a bill similar to this, although in my judgment, a fair bit weaker. And, um, and I thought, well, this seems to me to be um, well within my value set. Um, I can't imagine anybody who uh, is in favor of um, using the products for slave labor. Uh, it also appealed to my historic, uh, historical and faith um, experience that, um, that slavery is just wrong. And um, so not only is it wrong, it's economically stupid. Um, so um, anyways, uh, the, the bill came together. I thought that that was a good start. And that's what we're doing. Make it a good start. So give me an example of what might be made by slave labor. Well, finger the garment you're wearing and ask yourself, what do I know about the origin of that product? Um, go into Home Depot and buy a set of gloves. And, you know, uh, and you'll say that you look at the labels. Well, the cheap ones are made in China and the middle ones are made in China and the expensive ones are made in China. And do you know whether any any of those products are actually, we'll say in this particular instance, uh, Uyghur products. So, you know, go to um, Sobeys and buy, um, uh, buy shrimp from South China Sea. Uh, do you know whether those shrimp products are actually um, not, um, are harvested by um, people on slave boats uh, who are, forced out to sea and um, not allowed to leave for literally years on end. Wow. Now, going back to Sobeys, because we had a previous conversation where we were just chatting, you said there was a really kind of ironic twist going on here uh, about your daughter. So what's right. going on there? Well, uh, ironically, um, well, Rachel did a, a degree in corporate social responsibility at a at a UK university and she's had, she has a job with uh, Sobeys and it's kind of amusing to me that um, one of her responsibilities will be uh, to facilitate the implementation of this bill for Sobeys 
And it's actually been a very useful conversation she and I have had over the, the several years that we've been doing this product because for a company like Sobeys, and I'm, I'm only picking out on Sobeys, but you can say any, any grocery company in Canada, they're going to have to examine their supply lines and satisfy themselves that there's no slave uh, con constituent in any of their supplies. Um, and for Sobeys, that means 4,000 lines of product. So wow. this is a significant undertaking by a company such as Loblaws or Sobeys or Metro or, you know, pick your, pick your company. And so Rachel's actually been kind of useful to me in terms <laughs> of giving me a realistic appreciation of how um, difficult this bill will be for, for some companies to implement, but also how uh, actually enthusiastic her superiors are oh. to, see it, to see it done. Hmm. which has kind of been a bit of a surprise to me. I had anticipated a bigger pushback right. from corporate Canada. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. by and large, uh, corporate Canada is on side. And it's on side for several good reasons. One, they don't want to be selling a uh, product like that. But the more selfish reasons is that they don't want their uh, they don't want their customers to be centering them out in mm -hmm. national uh, media that they are selling slave product, and mm -hmm. they don't want to have conversations with their bankers about the products that they might be selling. And you know, there's a, there is a concept called ethical investing, and that pool of capital will not be made available to uh, corporations that ignore this bill. That's interesting. So the, the bottom line is they were kind of looking for a framework or some guidance. Yep. And now this kind of gives it to them. And I'm sure Rachel goes into work every day. Thanks, Dad. You're just giving me a huge headache. But, uh, I, but I don't I don't think she uses the last name McKay. <laughs> she's changed. Yeah, right. Yes. She's got a yeah, different name. Uh, Thank yeah. God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so, know him. I don't know him. Yeah, I don't know. Him. No, yeah. no relation. Uh, no. So let me ask you this, because kids that are, you know, stuck hooking rugs or making some widget and bringing money home to their parents, if they're taken out of that system, uh, thanks to your legislation, that means the money that they were bringing home isn't brought home anymore. So what happens? Well, potentially that is a, a consequence. Um, there, uh, there is an element in the bill which says that uh, if you have an, um, slavery in your supply or forced labor, child labor in the supply chain, uh, you'll have to take steps to um, uh, to re remediate and report on those steps. So, um, in order to alleviate the the, the consequences to vulnerable uh, families, mm. um, hopefully, hopefully, um, I'm not totally naive about this. Um, the happy consequence will be that people will will actually work and get um, uh, will work for proper rate wages livable wages. Well, that sounds kind of aspirational, but you've got sure to start somewhere, right? Well, this is a start somewhere bill. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. can't carry on doing what we're doing, which yeah. is using $50 billion worth of slave products. That's just wrong. And it's also economically stupid. We, we, we cut ourselves out of work by doing that. So um, the a couple of parties in the House didn't support it. They didn't think it went far enough. And uh, just as we're doing this interview, 
your own government says it's coming out with another bill uh, with similar ambitions. Uh, this is Seamus O'Regan uh, put out a release today saying we will introduce government legislation next year that eradicates forced labor from Canadian supply chains and so on. Did anyone not tell him that you've already done a similar <laughs> bill or is this about no, something? Uh, actually, the minister's been actually highly supportive of this bill. Right. Um, he uh, sat with me uh, during the debate mm -hmm. uh, at both the second reading and final reading. Um, so he's certainly well aware of the bill. He's encouraged me to uh, to proceed with the bill, and um, and uh, so well, the bill is now law. Your bill yeah, exactly. is now law. Exactly, we've got royal assent. Right. So in starting January first of next year, uh, companies are going to have to start complying. So uh, it does take a lot of effort, even if you're the government, to get legislation moved from a statement to um, uh, to actual royal assent. So um, I'm rather hoping that whatever bill that he might put forward will will strengthen the legislation that is already the law. Yeah, because whatever bill he's putting forward, no one's seen it yet, right? No. Right. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, you've been an MP since 1997 and you've seen all sorts of ups and downs, but doing this private member's bill, as you said, there's many a slip between the cup and a lip and you've been at it for, you probably spent hundreds of hours on this thing. So well, I, you know, I, I, you don't keep a clock in this business. Uh, no. I think you'd be depressed if you did, <laughs> but it's, it is a, a challenge because I'm a private member uh, member. That means I'm not a part of the cabinet. Um, I don't have a huge panoply of, assistants and uh, staff and departments to assist me in anything. It's me and my two guys here. And um, so we, we work on it and, um, and you have to just kind of stay aware, uh, be alert to, to what's happening um, and take advantage where you can take advantage and know enough about the system to try and, uh, manipulate around the um, the um, how should we say the limitations of the system. Well, did uh, along the way did anyone try to stop you to say no, this is going too far, or anyone even in your own government to say we can't do this, it's too far? Did anyone try to put a spoke in your wheels? No, not directly, but um, you know the uh, civil servants live to say no. Yeah. Um, and uh, oh, this is too complicated, or we can't do this, we can't do that. You just have to keep on plowing, you know, just keep on heading. And after a while, uh, the, the the negativity falls away. But did anybody actually say, look, McKay, you're totally offside. Um, don't do this. No. Well, so, look, I want to know uh, what what did you do? What did you do when you found out that um, you this is through? You're getting royal assent. Did you, you know, pop a cork? Did you? <laughs> what did you do? Yes. Well, the uh, as my wife would say, she, uh, I have a narrow emotional range, uh, <laughs> so so you don't get uh, too high, too low. Uh, we did have a little party here. Um, the people from World Vision came over, and a couple of the other MPs have been particularly helpful, and and uh, Julie Milvain, Shane, and her her staff, and we did have a little bubbly, and uh, a, a few nibblies. Uh, but er then, you know, you do that and then everybody rushes out to wherever it is they have to rush out to. So uh, that's but that's a... OK. You get to bask in the glow. So 
well, uh, I didn't realize I didn't have the long Zoom. Apparently, we're going to get cut off soon, which is too bad. But it's nice because we pretty well uh, covered the waterfront. And um, I think it's really very, very interesting and, and uh, uh, well done. Well done for you. So uh, thank you for uh, sharing how it went. And um, tell Rachel <laughs> keep her name changed yeah yeah keep the name changed yes, yes. well i okay. do, should do i should do a shout out for world vision okay. who've been at this for 10 years and have been really helpful um I'm, in fact I, this week i'm going to see them in mississauga and and ceremonially present a certified copy of the bill to the president of world vision so keep the faith well i hope you're going to be a little more exuberant there or, or if, if <laughs> well or, i don't know or maybe your wife's right you've just got yeah. one emotional range slapped, that's right. right that's right that's it yeah. <laughs> okay well take care and uh we'll see you on the hill okay take care so i'm joined by brian massey and he is the ndp mp for windsor west and he has a private member's bill that is in the senate but is looking very positive. Um, it's had a lot of support through the House and the Senate, and it's to create a, an urban park right in Windsor. And uh, I will let Brian tell us more about it. What's it about, Brian? Massey? Well, really, it's about uniting a bunch of public land that's together. Um, it's um, the oldest European settlement west of Montreal is the Windsor region. And this land um, is still naturalized and provides coverage for 200 of Canada's 500 endangered species. So the bill simply unites uh, city, provincial, uh, and some federal land uh, together uh, to create a national urban park to help protect the species and provide better uh, coverage for our area, which is decimated. Right. And so it's called the Ojibwe National Urban Park, and it's about 900 acres. Uh, that is something you've been working on for a while, I gather. Yeah, it's about 10 years in total from protecting Ojibwe shores. And it's next to the bridge um, that's being built, the Gordie Howe International Bridge, which I had my first public meeting as a city councillor back in 1998 at Marlboro Public School. So um, it's actually half the time of what the bridge is taking to get done. But at any point, uh, it's kind of special that both are taking place, uh, holding hands really across the uh, Detroit River and into the United States and also back into Canada. Wow, that's very poetic. Now, Brian, what would make you hang on to this thought for 10 years. Well, it's just a background I've had with the environment and um, it comes from the auto sector and greening that and pushing that forward. But also too, our area has about 6% to 7% of natural coverage, which is horrible. And then when you realize the properties in the area and the amount of endangered species that we have, which are butterflies, uh, insects, fauna, um, you know, snakes, uh, foxes, a whole series of different things, because we're a Carolinian forest, um, it actually sweeps all the way down into the Carolinas in the United States. We get incredible diversity not seen in the rest in Canada. And so this is the last hope and last ditch uh, to protect this area, the Detroit waterfront um, in Windsor, and also connect into some beautiful areas that are also protected. So what is a Carolinian forest? It is the diversity of uh, description, really, in terms of tree coverage. So what's different is as you go further north, um, you get less diverse trees. And because we're so far south and off the Great Lakes system, uh, we actually get all kinds of different uh, trees from walnuts, maples, silvers, all kinds of different ones that are very unique. 
um, that also are very similar to the eastern United States and sweeps all the way down into uh, North Carolina. So uh, that's what makes us unique. And that's why at one point in time, uh, it was one of the most robust uh, forests in, the, uh, in, the, in the, the Great Lakes system. So you were mentioning that there was about 200 endangered species in this park system that yes. you're hoping to create. Give me some examples of what they might be. You mentioned butterflies. I'm not sure if they're endangered, but give me some examples yeah. of the endangered species in there. Well, there's different dragonflies. There's some foxes. There's um, there's a Massasauga rattler snake, for example. Hmm. Um, I'm not as good with the botanical part with regards to the plants. Um, we actually have an incredible group of um, naturalists that have identified and listed them all out. And so there's 500 in Canada in total. 200 are reside here. Wow. Um, but they're literally, you know, when it comes to the creatures, they're um, the smaller ones, because we don't have as many predators as uh, we have, but we also have birds and other migratory species, everything from bald eagles to um, different type of fisher kings and other birds that uh, use this to migrate to Point Pelee and also into the other parts of Canada. And so we're actually an environmental hotspot. And that's one of the things that's been identified most recently is not necessarily the size of geography that you have, but the types of creatures and living things that can be in there. Um, and so uh, same with insects. There's a series of them, and I, you know, I, I couldn't even pronounce some of the names, but they're, you know, people can kind of associate. There's dragonflies that are unique and stuff like that. It's it's quite interesting because everyone, you know, when you think of Windsor, you think of the auto sector. You don't think yep. of a, a park with 200 endangered species in it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why we've been fighting so hard to protect the land. And I had a huge fight with the Port Authority for years. Um, they actually were going to bulldoze the actual area down and turn it into a parking lot uh, oh. for development and was able to scuttle that deal. And from then been forcing the government to uh, deal with the Port Authority. Finally, they're going to turn the land over. They just actually did that. Uh, but it's going to cost Canadians, which is ridiculous. And a side story to all of this is actually we're paying, you know, environmental money to the Port Authority for land that we already own because what people don't understand, port authorities are nothing more than your Canada Post. Uh, hmm. We own them. They don't own hmm. us. But that's hmm. a story on the side. That's a whole separate side deal here. Um, so tell me about the fact that it's going to be co-managed by First Nations. Well, this is what's exciting about it is that um, we're seeing more of that a movement across Canada. But there's Walpole First Island has been there for many years in terms of a reserve and uh, its economic and other cultural contributions to the area. But what's emerged as well, too, is the Caldwell First Nations, which about 10 years ago signed one of the first modern land settlement deals and is now setting up a um, a separate um, uh, uh, place by Leamington, right next to Point Pelee. And so long story short, the Caldwells were promised Point Pelee when they fought with the British in the War of 1812 and helped defend the shores for Canada. After that, the British then and the Canadians double-crossed them, burned mm -hmm. them out of their homes, and they had to actually go from village to village just recently. So they've settled. Um, they actually have a new reservation. This is their land and territory. I've had them as partners from day one down here. And so it's an amazing story of reconciliation. In fact, if you go to Point Pelee right now, there's actually displays to show what took place with regards to their heritage. And they are now actually working with Point Pelee to actually build that up because their reserve is next door to it. So it's actually one of the better stories that you can talk about with regards to reconciliation of First Nations. So just geographically, sorry, is Point Pelee near where this park is going to be created? Yes, absolutely. It's it, Geographically, it's just basically, uh, it's Canada's southernmost tip. It's actually right. just further west, and yeah. it's about an hour drive um, from the, the actual location of Windsor West, and it's towards the Leamington area. So 
It's a uh, significant um, place, piece of property. Again, very small in terms of national parks, but also a wonderful connection uh, for sanctuary for birds and migratory species that are necessarily, especially crossing in the Great Lakes. And this is what all mix makes it exciting is this is international. Um, our park in the area will uh, touch in with the Hamburg Marsh and other types of the US where they're doing massive restoration and they're supporting this project as well too. So if I were to take a walk in this park, uh, what would I see? Well, right now, actually, it's in different components. So if you were at the, the uh, you know, Ojibwe uh, shores, it's mostly undeveloped right now because the port had it. And there's just kind of informal trails that are the next land to it, Black Oak Heritage. You could actually go on a bike ride there and actually uh, go through that. And then you see a lot of trees and more forestation. Um, and then if you go a little bit farther uh, to the to the to the south, you would actually then get into tall grass prairie, uh, which is endangered. And we have the Spring Garden Ansi, which is one of the few places left in North America that has tall prairie grass. Mm. Um, and then you also get connected along the highway next to it where there's lots of trails and so forth. And there's a Jibway Nature Center as well, too, which is, again, is a diverse um, area of natural trees, walking trails and habitat for many species. So uh, should this become a national park and, and uh, if your bill passes, does that mean the federal government will have to be spending money to make sure that uh, everything in there is preserved and remains intact and doesn't become endangered in any way? Absolutely, because it's worth it. And it's also good for uh, ecotourism and everything. And so right now, the most of the properties are managed either by the city, the province. So the taxpayers are already doing this, but it's not co-managed together. And that's what we're talking about is uniting them properly with a good business plan, create better efficiencies, and also by do proper planning for the species and also for the use by citizens. So right now we have all these properties that are kind of functioning on their own, uh, some of them connected together. Others, there's a couple roads that separate them, uh, but they need this type of overseeance and this type of uh, support. And it's actually one of the most cost-effective uh, parks that'll be out there because, again, there's no tax dollars being used to purchase any of this land. It's being donated by the province, donated by the city. The only one that actually insisted upon money is the Port Authority, which hmm. the federal government could have made them transfer for no dollars. I showed how that could be done, and they could do it any day, but they're gonna actually going to get a cash payout, which is ironic because, again, the Port Authority is your own land. So the city's in of it for it for free. But you're the not bitter, Brian. You're not bitter. Are you? No, I guess you <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Well, listen, I, I've had to deal with them. Um, and quite frankly, um, they've done a good job in recent years. Uh, Peter Berry, um, who actually has cleaned up the area and done a great job. It's been basically, though, the ports are basically political creatures. Uh, their appointments are political. Their um, director is political. That's just the reality. And so I do have, I guess, a bone of a contention because, again, um, I went through this before where we had to buy a provincial park um, called uh, Pesh Island for $1.3 million in the city of Windsor that was owned by the province of Ontario. And we had to buy it for $1.3 million to save it. So I've got a history of, you know, public money being used to purchase public land, which is just obscene. Ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> just going back to First Nations um, managing the park, uh, what approach would that be? How, how will we know that First Nations are managing the park? Well, there'll be not only the identification for that, but it'll be structural in it as well. But that's what's happening right now is there's been money provided to both Caldwell and Walpool Island to help get their business plan together and mm -hmm. also the federal government to create a working management agreement. So when they come out with negotiations with that, then it'll come a little bit more public and how that's done. There'll also be more consultation. So um, it, it could involve a different sets of capacities that we don't know. It really depends on the interest of the groups. And this is really special again, because, you know, this is a group that we wouldn't have the land if it was 
wasn't for the Caldwell First Nations, um, you know, and they barely survived uh, to this day. And now it's going to be, you know, very much important for the future and a good example, I think, and an opportunistic one um, to show that we can do better and we can do better. And Chief Mary Duckworth has been amazing in this. I've had her in Ottawa several times supporting uh, the bill and also traveled with me to Toronto to work with the Wildland Leagues and, uh, and others that have been great partners on this. So uh, this is a great story in itself. Well, listen, so uh, I like to call this segment the thrill of the bill. Is, is this a thrill? Absolutely. Because if we get this done, what it means is we can show people in our own communities and our youth for Windsor, Essex County and other places that we can take care of climate change. We can actually improve the environment and it can be in your backyard and it can be in a place that you have control over. And I think that's one of the most discouraging things about fighting climate change, fighting the changing environment and also protecting species is people just don't know what to do. And so this is a working model that it actually we can pass on for generations and, and have right in your hands uh, in the area, uh, a creation and a gift um, that we've neglected but can actually find a true uh, outcome I think that's respectful. Hmm. So just to wrap up I mean you've been an MP for what 20 years? 21 years. 21 years (laughs) you've done all sorts of things you've been involved in all sorts of topics. Is a private member's bill that goes through the process and gets royal assent is that like is that like right there is that the cherry on the sundae is that is that pretty a sense of accomplishment or it's pretty, yeah, no, it's pretty up there. I mean, the Gordie Howe Bridge is another one, but also there's other things that we got done that don't get attention, like any corporate deductibility of fines and penalties from uh, corporations. But there's no doubt that this is special because it's also about giving a gift in the sense to our young people from ourselves and tools to actually impact their future in a positive way that doesn't have them as passive citizens, but includes them and, you know, transfers to them empowerment to actually continue the work that needs to be done for this national urban park that everybody in Canada can be proud of. And it it holds its place there with 200 of Canada's 500 endangered species. It might be small, but it's mighty. Small but mighty. So if it does get through, because you're telling me it's very, very close, will you be celebrating? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's going to be, there's no doubt. And in fact, it's really taken um, well in the community. I can't go anywhere without people talking about it because it's hope, it's opportunity. Uh, It's about using the tools around you. Uh, It's also about uniting Parliament. Uh, You know, we had, you know, some, you know, the Liberals were offside at first, but have now come onside. So, you know, this is uh, one of those unique moments where I think people can see that democracy can work and a new Democratic bill in the Senate. I have some good support from Senators uh, Beams and also Senator McDonald and others that I already met with that are wonderful people to work with and so this is a different path and i think though it shows you that we have limited time here and limited opportunities and we better make the best best of them um parliament is is short every single time i've learned that after going through eight elections brian massey windsor west mp uh i congratulate you you're almost there you're very close (laughs) And it's nice to see you so passionate about this. Well, thank you. No, it's uh, it's fun work too. And again, it's uh, I, I think the journey's just begun. But it's got the journey's got to be the start is when we finish it in the Senate and the House of Commons, and then the journey begins. Okay. Listen. Have a have a great summer. If I don't see you. Thank you so much, and thanks for this opportunity. Okay. Take care. Bye. Take care. I'm Julie Van Dusen. Have a great summer. The CPAC podcast, Today in Politics, returns when Parliament resumes on September 18th.